KMTT, Kimitzion Tetzel Torah. We're listening to the Erev Shabbat program, Erev Shabbat Kodesh Parashat Shmot. The Erev Shabbat program is Lului Nishmat Shlomo Yosef Ben Chaim Shmuel, and I'm your host, Jonathan Snowbell. Did I say Kafbet Shvat? I meant Kafbet Tevet. When I examine something in this week's Parsha, Parshat Shmot, and that is the series of hesitancies that we see on behalf of Moshe Rabbeinu, his willingness or his lack of willingness to take the to take the mission that God is trying to place on him, trying very hard and succeeding in different levels of success till the end of the Parsha. We're all familiar with the the give and take in Perak Gimel and Dalit when Moshe sees Moshe had the said Perak Gimel no Perak Gimel and Dalit I was correct or Moshe meets God at the Sneh, and God says, go, well, who am I to go, they won't believe me, etc. That's one set of hesitancies that we remember, we're, we're aware of, till the point where God gets angry at Moshe, and at the end of that section, at the end of Hamishi, we sort of get the impression that everything is set, it's okay. He's going. Now after God got angry at him, he's going. But in fact, the last word is God getting angry at him and it's unclear where exactly it goes from there. Right? The last the last sentence in that whole give and take between Moshe and God is God getting angry at him. Aaron Achicha is, is coming to, to, to meet you and you'll speak through him. And take the mate with you. That's it. But doesn't say Vayomer Moshe Anochia Varecha. Moshe does not formally accept the mission. If we continue going on, we'll see that the hesitancy continues. And that continues with Moshe telling Yitro, his father in law, that he wants to go back. To see his brothers in Mitzrayim, Ve'ereha Odam Chaim. We could uh, speculate as to why he doesn't say, I'm going to go down to Mitzrayim and take my brothers out of Mitzrayim as God commanded me. There's some sort of, but, but simply speaking, there's, there's a lack of acceptance. There's a, there's somewhere of a middle ground. I'll go back to Mitzrayim, not exactly sure what I'm doing there. He's not exactly believing entirely yet, then, in, what he's doing, and he's not able to tell others, even his father-in-law, what is it that exactly he's doing. And then in the following pasuk, God again appears to Moshe, and he says, go down to Mitzrayim, where there was some other thing, uh, some other point of hesitance on Moshe's behalf that God needed again to tell him to go. Now, 
And he, I think the the most interesting hesitancy, which I which one might argue, is different shots. I think this is a good read. Is Moshe's decision not to do a brit love for his son. And I see this also within Moshe's hesitance, and we'll explain this shortly. But again, I just want to take you to the end of the Parsha. And the end of the Parsha, of course, is Moshe coming to Paro for the first time. And 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 in Moshe's view is failing completely because not only does B'nai, do B'nai Shon not leave Mitzrayim, but the the slavery in Mitzrayim becomes more severe as a result. And Moshe is very upset. Why did you do this? Why did you send me? Only things have gotten worse since I since I came around. In other words, Moshe almost saying, I told you so. To God. If all Moshe was hesitant beforehand, and he finally went, and now everything went bad, so his, what he was hesitating about has now been strengthened all the more so. So we have to ask ourselves a, a general question then. What is Moshe being hesitant about? What, what's holding him back? Our first interaction with Moshe as a grown person is a person of great morality. He's a person of great morality. We won't go into the details of the moral development within the three cases, but the three cases where Moshe saves the Jewish person, or the Hebrew slave who's being beaten by the Egyptian slave master, Moshe intervening in a fight between two Jewish Hebrew slaves, and finally, Moshe saving the daughters of Yitro from the other shepherds at the well. Rav Sabato has a vision here of, as I said, a moral development, how each case is an improvement from the previous case. We won't go into those details right now. What we do want to establish is that clearly the Torah is establishing the moral character of Moshe Rabbeinu, someone from the Egyptian side of the track who can intervene on the behalf of a, a slave who's being beaten unfairly, apparently. But again, the unfairly is not something that we see in the Pasuk, just the whole situation of slavery, perhaps, is unfair in his eyes. He intervenes between the two Hebrew slaves, and finally he intervenes, intervenes on behalf of complete strangers. In other words, even if we could say that Moshe did have some sort of identification with the Jewish people, with the Hebrews, he was aware of his past. When he comes already to Midian, he has no identification with any of the two sides at all, except for what's just and fair. And in fact, and this is something that Rab Sabato does point out, the term Vayoshian, the term of, of saving, only appears in the third case. It doesn't appear in the second case, it doesn't appear in the first case, though one would have expected that the term Vayoshian, that he saved them, would have appeared in the first two cases also. He saved the Hebrew from the Mitri, he saved the Hebrew who was going to be hit by the other Hebrew, but only in the third case. Moshe's moral character then is established. Then, what would someone who has such great moral character, 
What would it be his hesitancy then to be sent to save the slaves from this immoral situation of being enslaved? What's holding him back? A person who comes from this pure moral background, it's easy for him to see many injustices in the world. Perhaps there is a lack of belief in any moral point of reference in the world. The world is helter-skelter. The world is not fair. He tried to intervene in the few little places that he tried to. It got him into severe trouble. He had to run for his life. The world is not ready for a moral compass. The world cannot hold morality together. The world is unfair. Then he meets God. Now, one way to say that meeting God then is the is the answer to all this, all, all these feelings. But in fact, it might be even more difficult to face God. As a, a former principal of mine once said, that facing evil is not more difficult for a secular person who has no faith in God. For a secular person, facing evil is unfortunate, but doesn't raise any dilemmas, because if there's no God, and there's no moral compass to the world, then there are no guarantees about who's going to win and who's going to lose. Specifically, Davka, when there is a God, the question of evil prevailing over good or evil prevailing is a much more difficult question. So meeting God does not solve Moshe Rabbeinu's problems and in fact they might open a floodgate of even more problems and more difficulties. And God tries to address this initially in Pasuk Zayin of Paragimel by saying that he ha- he's aware of the suffering of Bnei Israel. But at the same time, God does not introduce himself as a God of morality, as a God of the world. He addresses himself over and over again, identifies himself over and over again as Elohei Avraham Avicha, Elohei Avicha, Elohei Avraham, Elohei Yitzchak, Elohei Yaakov, over and over again throughout the parak. Elohei Avotachem Shlachani Alechem. God is trying to set up that things are not as they seem for B'nai Israel. There is a special relationship that is existing here that somehow is at the basis of God's interaction with B'nai Israel. God is not just the God of morality that sees the suffering of B'nai Israel as human beings and needs to save them from that suffering. But God is something beyond that. 
And that something beyond, that connection to the Avot, is something I believe that is more difficult for Moshe to grasp. Why is it more difficult for Moshe to grasp, and why do I believe this? A, Moshe is not really brought up Jewish, as a, as a, as an Ivri. He's brought up in Paro's home. It's foreign to him. Moshe's moral compass is strong by the character of who he is, for whatever reason, that we know. But this idea of a special relationship of God to a particular people is foreign to Moshe. And what God is trying to say is that despite the fact that sometimes the world and the way God runs the world leaves room for evil to prevail at times, God is intimating a special relationship with the, the, the B'nai Israel specifically. Now Moshe doesn't identify with this. He doesn't identify with this on a moral level. What's, where's the room for the special relationship with the Jewish people? Again, this is my claim. And where is the room for saving a particular people who are suffering? Chazal pick up on this point in two places where they point to Moshe's hesitancy as to why B'nai Israel deserved to be saved. He's noticed bad characteristics amongst B'nai Israel. Why do they deserve to be saved? And in Chazal's view, the answer is that they're going to get the Torah on Har Sinai, which again is not an answer which can satisfy Moshe, who's coming from a moralistic point of view. Finally, what ultimately shows Moshe's hesitancy is his, and this I think is the most simple shot in this, my wife, amongst other ideas here, pointed out to me, the simple shot of not having a Brit Milah is not identifying with the Brit of Avraham Avinu. All these things that God was saying, Elohei Avraham, Elohei Yitzchak, Elohei Yaakov, which were foreign to Moshe, he didn't go through and and circumcise his son, as is demanded by the Brit of Avraham Avinu. We could have all these ulterior motives as to why he didn't do a Brit Milah, but the simple understanding of someone who does not give their son a Brit Milah is a lack of identification with said Brit. All of this, I believe, is some sort of background, and I'm not going to follow up completely here. Some of the follow-up is in the beginning of next week's Parsha, in Parsha Va'era, where God reformulates the understanding of the Brit that he has with Avraham Yitzchak and Yaakov, because he doesn't talk about the Brit in Paragimel and Dalid, he mentions that he is Elohei Avraham, Elohei Yitzchak, Elohei Yaakov, but the question of remembering the Brit only comes up in Parshat Va'era. But, just as a quantum leap into the future, past the Shiabud, past Yitziat Mitzrayim, past Matan Torah, into Chet Egel, Moshe Rabbeinu does switch teams. And at the point where God wants to destroy B'nai Israel because they are not being correct, they are not doing the right things, they are being immoral, Moshe Rabbeinu is going to be the one who's going to say, Zuchor, 
the Brit of Avraham, Yitzchak, and Yaakov. He's going to come to the other side. He has become convinced by the Brit of Avraham, Yitzchak, and Yaakov, and he's going to hold up, hold that in front of God at the time where God wants to destroy B'nai Israel because they lack the ability to worship God, perhaps they lack morality. But, but Moshe will then say, Don't forget the Brit with Avraham, Yitzchak, and Yaakov. And what we're seeing here, and what we're formulating, although we haven't formulated it to the T, is that morality alone does not, or what human natural morality alone does not stand at the basis of our relationship with God, but this unique relationship of the Brit between the Jewish people and God, between the forefathers of the Jewish people and God, together with morality, are at the basis here. This can shed light on our understanding of Akedat Yitzchak, perhaps. This can also shed light on our understanding of Moshe. And if we haven't fully grasped it, and I don't think I formulated it to an extent that it could be fully grasped, we can take solace in the fact that Moshe Rabbeinu, according to this read, didn't fully grasp it at the beginning either. Food for thought for Parshat Shemot. We'll pass on the microphone to Rabbik. Shabbat Shalom. Parshat Shemot. We start a new Sefer and a new Parsha this week. Parshat Shemot has a number of interesting halachot uh, and lessons. We're not going to do them all. And uh, basically, I think, rather familiar, but nonetheless, it's worthwhile to point them out. The first one I want to talk about is Rosh Rabbeinu leaves Paro's house and goes to visit his people, goes to see what's going on outside the palace. The second day, the first day was when he saw an Egyptian hitting a, a Jew. The second day he saw two Jews, two Jews arguing. He said to the uh, to the evil one, "Why are you hitting your uh, your friend, your fellow?" It says Lama Take, and the drush here refers to the fact that technically speaking, Take is future. Why will you hit your fellow? Which even when we say it in English, can very well mean why will you hit means why do you hit? But the drush assumes that he hadn't yet hit him. Said, he raises his hand against his friend, even though he has not hit him, is already called a rasha. As is written, Lama hikita lo nema. Doesn't say why have you hit your friend. Ela lama takeh. Why will you hit your friend? Even though he has not yet hit him, he's very called a rasha. That's the Gemara in Sanhedrin Daf Nun Chet. Now this sounds like nice Musa. Interestingly enough, it's quoted the halacha. 
In other words, it's quoted as a, as a, as a real halacha, not just as a, as, as Musa. For instance, and I think this is a rather extreme example, it's quoted as a halacha midioraita, the Rambam, in Sefer Mitzvot, Lotaser Shin 300, is the prohibition against hitting people. And the Rambam says, Azharam mehakot kol ish mi Yisrael. It is a prohibition to hit another Jewish person. V'kvar his hiranu, and we've already been warned, uh, enjoined, milirmoz lehakot, to, I'm translated literally, to hint at hitting. In other words, to give a sign, remez, to give a sign that you're going to hit somebody. Afilu lo yake. Amru b'sanhedrin, kol ha-magbe yadol ha-bayro nikra rasha. There's a Rambam in Sefer Mitzvot, which of course is a halachic work. And, and he's, he's describing what is the meaning of this mitzvah diorita, the isur, the prohibition against hitting. And the Rambam says, it's also to hit, and we included in that is the prohibition against hinting at hitting, giving a sign of hitting. Uh, and then he calls the Gemara in Sanhedrin. The, uh, in Shulchan Aruch, in Chosh uh, Mishpat, there's a list of those who are psulei edut, those who uh, are disqualified from, uh, from testifying, from being witnesses. The general rule is that Rishaim, someone who has transgressed and he saw the Oraita, a lav, a negative prohibition of the Torah, is called a Rasha, and Rishaim are not allowed to testify. So, then there's a list of the Oraitut and the Rabbanan. One of the people who are mid Rabbanan, a rabbinic uh, disqualification, is he who's raised his hand to hit somebody else, even though he hasn't hit him. So, you see two things here. One, you see that it, it, it's, it's, it's a technical issue. In other words, not everybody who's acted in a manner which is you know, morally disreputable is disqualified from testifying. But this is someone who is called a rasha, therefore is disqualified. Yeah, he's only disqualified mid rabbanan. It should have been mid yoraita. So the achwanim the state you know, asked this question. They said that yes, it's really the oraita, the gra, and um, I think uh, it's not the only one. The sma as well. They say that it is a technical isur yoraita, but since it's not explicit in the Torah, it's only learned from the story with Moshe Rabbeinu, so therefore, when you learn from there that he's disqualified from being a witness, this required a rabbinic sanction. But the, the actual category is a real isur the yoraita. Remember, I was young, I was in ninth grade, I was 13 years old, and I didn't know that much. And in class, we had a science class, the teacher was Jewish, but not not observant. Apparently, he had a certain good background, and, and two boys in class got into a fight, and one raised his hand. And the teacher, we didn't, we didn't even know he was Jewish. We, we thought he didn't know anything. He said, "Do you know that he who raises his hand against this fellow is called an evildoer?" We were very much impressed, and, and I think that stuck with me ever since hearing it in that unusual circumstances. Okay, so that's our first halacha of the day. Uh, what does it really mean? It's interesting the language that's used by the Rambam: "Milirmoz lehakot." What's wrong with raising your hand against, against your fellow? If you haven't actually hit him, hitting is bad. What's wrong with raising your hand? The answer is, I think the word remorse means that you're threatening him. In other words, it's a form, it's a form of violence. Like we say sometimes that there's verbal violence. Okay, so this is like verbal violence. So he's being acting out violence. You're, you're, you're imposing your will on somebody else by force. And, and the threat of force is itself force. 
and therefore, and therefore, it's it's prohibited. You're not allowed to threaten. I think that's basically what it's saying. You're not allowed to threaten. It's given a particular way of threatening, but you're not allowed to threaten another another person. Okay, this left from Moshe Rabbeinu, who realized the importance of the Pasha. You know, this is like, this is not just ha- happened to have happened. This was Moshe Rabbeinu's uh, one of his crucial foundation experiences, and his reaction that he immediately recognized. That the person to whom he was speaking was an evildoer because of what he was doing is one is how we know Moshe Rabbeinu is becoming Moshe Rabbeinu. This is we recognize Ah, Moshe Rabbeinu is a special person because of his extreme moral sensitivity to this particular Aveva. We should pay attention to this Aveva. The next case, uh, Moshe Rabbeinu flees Mitzrayim, goes to Midian, is wandering in the desert with his sheep, and he meets the burning bush, and then he hears a voice that says to him. The voice says to him, he should take off his shoes, for the place in which he is standing is holy land. This is the source, that in holy places, one does not wear shoes. Now, the, technically speaking, that means, actually only speaking, that means Harabait. In the Beit HaMikdash, or in Harabait, one does not enter Harabayit with shoes. The Gemara, the Halacha, the Gemara is, Lo yikanes adam na Harabayit lo v'maklo shebiyado v'lo v'manalo shebiraglo Not carrying your, your walking stick. When a walking stick was, you know, part of the, uh, the way people appeared. And without shoes, you know how to carry packages with you. This is the general Halacha is, Mora Mikdash. The respect for the holy place requires a certain way of, of walking, but how do we know that, that includes not wearing shoes? It's not intrinsically obvious, not even Chazal was intrinsically obvious that the way to show respect for a place is to take off one's shoes. So they quote this particular pasuk. To wear your shoes is not, it's not insulting, it's not, it's not uh, shown disregard for somebody or some place to wear shoes. But nonetheless, the Torah said, the Gemara was trying to show that you know how to spit. Uh, until recently, it was, you know, we, we, we modern generations have forgotten what this means, but in most of the world, people did not swallow their saliva. They would spit it out. There were spittoons in houses. And, and so, but it's also to do that in, in Harabai. So we understand, that's derech bizayon. So the Gemara says, if you have to take off your shoes, which isn't derech bizayon, but apparently a sign of higher degree of respect, so sure, you're not doing anything which is actually disrespectful. And this story, and this, this pasuk, where God told Moshe Rabbeinu to take off his shoes at the burning bush, at the Sneha Bo'er, is the source for that one must take off one's shoes when everyone goes into a place which is called Admat Kodesh. That only means uh, the Beit HaMikdash, or Harabayit. Kohanim, for instance, do not wear shoes either in, in Harabayit. They are uh, they are barefoot. Um, the actual mitzvah is a pasuk that's found in Vayikra in Pashat Kedoshim, Mikdashi Tirau Mora Mikdash. But the content of that general injunction to have awe, to show awe of the holy place. So, is learned among other things from our from this from, the, from, the, from this pasuk. And of course, we all know that in shul we don't go barefoot in a Beit Knesset, only in Beit Hamikdash. 
the Rambam paskins based on the Gemara that when you daven, when you're saying Shema Nesrei before God, you have to dress as you would appear before Gedolim, as you would appear before Melachim. Because you have to dress well when you daven. It's called Tikkun HaMalbush. You have to make your clothes well. You don't want to daven in pajamas. You don't want to daven undressed. Uh, you have to dress as though you were appearing in a formal audience before the king. Every culture, the way they would interpret that. Um, and for that reason, Rambam says you should not daven barefoot. Unless you happen to be in a culture where one can appear barefoot before the king, before important people. Most of the cultures which we're familiar with, say modern culture, if you were invited to the White House or to the Queen's uh, reception, you would not show up barefoot unless you were very famous and very powerful rock star. Uh, it'd be improper. So therefore, the same thing applies to davening. However, in the Beit HaMikdash, it's not dependent on social norms. There the Pasuk says, So where the ground itself is holy, you have a din of Moram Mikdash, of showing awe, you do that by taking off your shoes. However, it's not because you're davening. Standing before God, you should definitely get dressed, including putting on shoes in any culture which, which uh, recognizes and, 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 and values being fully dressed, including shoes, is the way, that one, is the way that one should be dressed. And one final halakha in the few minutes which we have left, a, a very famous one, Rashi quotes it on the spot, when God appears to Moshe Rabbeinu at the Snehabuah, at the burning bush, in the end, Moshe Rabbeinu asks him for his name, and he answers, says he's Yud Kevavke, Elokev Hamelke, Yitzhak Elokei Yaakov, and then he says, Eyeh Asher Eyeh, and he says, Zeshmi Le'olam V'zezichri L'dor V'dor. This is my name forever, and this is my memory from generations. The Gemara Dashens, Zeshmi Le'olam is written Ayin Lamed Vav Ayin Lamed Mem No Vav Ayin Lamed Mem So the word Olam could have been spelled maybe should have been spelled Ayin Vav Lamed Mem It says Le'olam without the Vav could be read as Le'alem to be hidden And from there the Gemara derives that God's name is hidden What does that mean? Lo Kfishani Nikra Ani Nikhtav It's written Yud K Vav K and it's pronounced Aleph Dalid Nun Yud. In fact, based on the Gemara in Sanhedrin, Hahoge et Hashem be Otiotav. So there's a machloket what that means. But we follow the halacha that even to spell out the Yud K Vav K, you know, which is why I'm saying Yud K Vav K and not pronouncing the Hey. Because even to spell it, not just to pronounce the name, but even to recite the four letters of that name, you don't do. Only in the Beit HaMikdash, the Kohen Gadol, the Kohanim, would uh, use God's ineffable name, God's, uh, the Tetragrammaton, the Yud Kevavke, would it be, would it be pronounced. It's an interesting halacha. I've never actually seen it discussed as to what the reason behind it is. Perhaps the reason is obvious, that in this world, God's presence is always hidden to some extent. And even when you call out God's name, in other words, you publicize God's presence, it's behind a shield. It is behind a cloak, behind a veil. Because God is never fully present. If He was present fully in the world, the world wouldn't exist. We would, we would, we would be 
bounced aside, we would be destroyed. So God's presence in the world is a hidden presence to allow us to find Him, to allow us to be genuinely moral choosing individuals who have to make our own who have to make our own choices. Latid Lavo, Olamaba, it'll be pronounced Yudkevakin is a certain dream, a vision of the possibility of God coexisting fully. Full presence, together with our full presence, and people were able to call out, anyone were able to call out on God's name. Of course, in the Beit HaMikdash, that's the place where God says that He will appear. It's like in the world, but not part of the world in a whole, in 100% of the way. And those are the Mudim Halachot for today. Kol Tuv Shabbat Shalom.